include some of the kids I used to teach when I was a high school teacher uh, in England, or even some of the celebrities that were, uh, you know, right up there back in the day. Uh, let me just share some of the things that I discovered with you. I wonder how many of us remember this guy, and I hope he's coming up. Let's, let's load that PowerPoint. No, this isn't the right one. Anyway, let's let's see if we can uh, if we can catch up there. Um, but there should be a picture of of a black guy with a mohawk and all chains around his neck. That's right. You'll know him as Mr. T. Uh, B.A. Baracus, you see him up there. Maybe we can put that, that first slide up, but just leave it there. That's Mr. T, B.A. Baracus in the 1980s TV show, The A-Team. And also, you may recognize him as Clubber Lang from the Rocky Three movies. He, his real name is Lawrence Turdo, and... Uh, he worked as an actor, as a bodyguard, as a wrestler, but he's actually a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. And today he's also a motivational speaker. I'm sure that up there somewhere, well, it's gone, but there should be a picture of Paul McCartney up there. And uh, Paul McCartney, one of the most recognizable faces in the, the whole music industry, he wrote 800 songs in his musical career, such classics as Yesterday, Hey Jude, Yellow Submarine, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. If you're, if you're under 25, just indulge we older ones. These are, these are titles from our youth. And today, what's Paul doing? Well, he's actually still doing gigs. He's a little bit older, quite a bit older, and he earns $15 million every year just from music royalties. And then there's this person. Let's go to the next one. Okay. Now, maybe you don't recognize him, but that's Carol Joseph Watt Tyler. He was a keen athlete in his day, great football player, supporter of Liverpool, supporter of Barcelona, and his position on the pitch was goalie. In fact, he coined the phrase safe hands to describe those people who were really skilled in that place. Later in life, though, he had a career change. He became a Roman Catholic priest, and then he became this guy, Pope John Paul II. Who would have thought that Lolek the goalie, as he was called, would become perhaps the most popular pontiff in modern times? Well, I'm sure we've all heard of Arnold Schwarzenegger. He came to the USA from Austria in 1968, and his first job was a bricklayer. 
Then he became a bodyguard, sorry, a bodybuilder, not a bodyguard. He won the Mr. Universe contest four times. Is he up there? And eventually he went to Hollywood. When he was making the Terminator movies in the 90s and 2000s, he was the highest paid actor in Tinseltown. Today, he still acts, although not as successfully. He still works out, although not as vigorously. And he promotes his own nutritional supplements. Where are they now? What are they doing today? Well, this morning, I want to ask that question about Jesus Christ. And I think we've got the wrong PowerPoint, so let's just can it and uh, we won't even go there. What happened from the cross to the throne is the title of my message today. And what we are going to think about is what Jesus is doing after the resurrection. What is he doing today? He was born in Bethlehem in, and raised in Nazareth. Luke writes of him that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. On the day of Pentecost, Peter adds another part of his life that he was crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up from the dead. And that's what we were celebrating last weekend. After that, Mark tells us that he was taken up into heaven. Let's look at that in a little bit more detail. So would you turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And I want to pick it up at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. By the way, Hebrews 1 and verse 3 tells us what happened next. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now let's go back to Acts 1 and verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. In those verses, there are four wonderful truths that I want to draw out and share with you as we think about what Jesus is doing today. What happened after the resurrection? Well, let's look at verse 9. And there, there's one simple phrase I want to draw your attention to. It says, he was lifted up. Luke tells us, first of all, that Jesus is ascended. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes that Jesus first descended. He's talking about the time when he laid aside all the privileges of his Godhead. He stripped off all the privileges of being the Son of God. He laid aside his glory and he emptied himself out and poured himself into a single male cell that the Holy Spirit fused with Mary's egg and so happened the mystery of the incarnation. That the God who filled heaven is now contained in a tiny human body. He's talking about how Jesus descended even from that to the cross. When he became, as he says in another letter, obedient to death, even death on the cross. And then Peter tells us that he descended even further, but from the cross he went down to Hades. Having destroyed the prince of Hades at Calvary, now he plunders Hades of its resources. And now he begins his rise up. Paul tells us that when he ascended, he led a host of captives in his train. What he's talking about are those Old Testament saints who had walked and talked with God in their life, who had lived by faith. And as they lived by faith, God gave to them a promissory note that one day one would come who would redeem them, cash in that note and bring them into their inheritance. Moses was amongst them, Elijah and Elisha, Joshua, Gideon, Deborah, Samuel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all the other prophets, they were there. And they'd received that assurance that one day they would be redeemed. And now as he ascends, they become his honor guard, if you like. As he takes them out of Hades and removing them to better quarters. So Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives. And what happens there is what we read about in Acts chapter 1. That he goes up through the heavens. Now the disciples would have understood something of the significance of that. Because being good Jews, they would understand that the heavens were the domain of Satan and all his demons. Paul writes and tells the Ephesians that he is the prince of the power of the air. And as Jesus Christ leaves Hades, comes to earth leaves earth and rises up through the heavens, so he declares his victory in the very headquarters of the kingdom of darkness, whose prince he has just defeated. But then he rises up further. He goes through the first heaven, and he goes through the second heaven. He rises up further still, until the third heaven comes into view, until the lights of glory a scene. And as he's there, the honor guard said, let's announce his coming. And so they call out, open up ancient doors, open up ancient doors and let the king of glory enter. But those angelic guardians of heaven aren't so quick to open up those ancient doors. 
And so they call back a challenge. Who is he, this king of glory? And the answer comes back. He is the Lord, strong and mighty. But once again, they issue a challenge. Who is he, this king of glory? And the honor guard say to one another, let's tell them. He is the Lord, strong and mighty. He is the Lord, mighty in battle. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. He is the word who was made flesh. He's the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, who trod the winepress of the Lord's fury all on his own. He died on the cross of Calvary. He received the punishment that brought us peace in himself. He disarmed the principalities and powers. He was dead. He was buried. He descended into hell. But now he's resurrected and he's ascending and he's coming home back into glory. Now swing back those gates. And at that they open the gates of heaven. And through the resurrected, glorified and ascending Jesus walks. And the whole of the Old Testament saints come with him. At that sound all the angels of heaven begin whooping and hollering and Jumping for joy. Dancing with pleasure because God has enacted his plan of salvation. They start to sing an anthem. For you were slain and by your blood has ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And to that refrain, Jesus enters the throne room. He ascends the stairs. His father rises in welcome. He watches his, he sees his wounds. He accepts his sacrifice. And then he says to him, sit at my right hand. This morning, Jesus has ascended from the lowest place to the highest place. And he has received a name which is above every name. What a wonderful truth this is, that Jesus is ascended. But you know, there's more. I said that God said to him, sit at my right hand. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read, after he made purification for sins, he sat down at God's right hand. Jesus isn't just ascended, he's seated. Hebrews 4 tells us we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus is sitting in heaven as our priest. Now, that's lost on people with a Western mindset, the significance of that. Let me explain. Every earthly priest, certainly in Israel, always stood to officiate in his office. He would never sit because there was always work to do. He was constantly offering sacrifices and bringing offerings because the blood of bulls and goats could only cover but not remove the guilt 
of sin. So there was constantly work to do. But when Jesus ascended, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in that little phrase, in that detail that seems so insignificant to us, there's a whole world of wonderful truth. Because what it's saying is, there's no more need for any other sacrifice. What he did on the cross is all sufficient. It's totally complete. It's absolutely effective. It doesn't need to be repeated. It doesn't need to be added to. It doesn't need to be improved on in any way. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God without spot or blemish whose blood on the cross speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel because it can cleanse our conscience from dead works. It's ransomed us from the futile ways handed down from our forefathers. It's justified us freely, making us acceptable to God, buying for us permanent redemption and total forgiveness from our sins. And this morning, we aren't redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. That was not a deposit on our salvation. It wasn't an installment against our salvation. It was its price in full. And because Jesus sat down, it was saying to us, your salvation is secure. Because of what Jesus did, you and I will never stand guilty before God again. Isaiah promises, I will blot out their sins, not cover them, but remove them altogether. Paul assures us that at the cross he did just that, cancelling the record that stood against us. He washed it clean. That word, by the way, cancelled is a very interesting word. There are two ways you can cancel something. When I was a teacher, we'd often put things on the board. You can tell how long ago it is. And, and if we wanted to cancel it, we could put an X through it. I often, as a student, received assignments back with an X put through them. That's one way of cancelling, but that's not the word that's used here in Colossians. Imagine that same writing on the board, and then somebody gets an eraser and completely causes it to go up literally in dust so that there's no trace of it, so that you can't see it, so it's as though it never existed. That's the word he uses in Colossians, and that's what Jesus has done with the record of our sin. He has completely removed it. He has totally expunged it. He has erased it absolutely. He has hit delete on it and never more will it ever reappear against our name ever again. In Hebrews we read that God will remember our sins no more. Now if God's omniscient, he can remember our sins. But what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is, he'll never use them against us because of what Christ 
has done. Because he's seated in heaven. His sacrifice is complete. We are saved. Sin's guilty stain this morning is removed. Its separation is ended. Its penalty is paid. Now forgiveness and reconciliation can happen. The wrath of God has been satisfied. We can be welcomed back into the Father's arms, the Father's house, and the Father's favor. What a wonderful truth. Completely wiped out the record of my sin and your sin. Hey, well, that was great for sins past. But, you know, what about the sins we committed even this morning? What about the sin we will commit in the future? What about those? Do we have a fresh charge sheet that God keeps? I grew up in the north of England. My father was a miner. All my uncles were miners. That was the industry that everybody did in, uh, in West Yorkshire, South Yorkshire. And one of the things I used to enjoy doing as a, as a little boy was to wait for my uncle to come home from the mine. Now, most of the guys used to shower at work and come home clean, but my uncle, for whatever reason, chose to come home and take a bath. And he would come home in colloquially what was called his pit muck. And so he was black from head to toe, except for two big white eyes. And as a kid, I thought, how does the coal dust know not to go in his eye? Well, I mean, it, it, of course it goes in his eye. But the truth is, in our eye, there's a little tear gland, little tear duct. And if any foreign body gets on that sensitive part of the eye, the tear duct kicks in and it goes bleep, 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 and it washes the eye clean. We could do a demonstration, turn and poke somebody in the eye. Oh, you, you'll, you'll see them. You'll see that tear duct going to work. You don't have to think about it. It happens automatically. It's constant. And that's why he had two big white eyes. In John's letter, first letter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, our version says, cleanses us. The original says, keeps on and on and on cleansing us from our sin that whenever sin sin's guilt comes on our heart because we're in relationship with him he constantly washes us clean so we'll never be guilty again now how do you know that that's not just a platitude because Jesus sat down. Because the sacrifice is complete. Because we can not add to it and need our take away from it. Jesus has ascended. Jesus is seated. 
He's a lamb that was slain. That's how John sees him in Revelation. A lamb freshly slain. Always and ever. Washing clean those that come to him in repentance. But there's another truth here. Yeah, he is seated, but he's not just seated as a priest. He's enthroned as a king. As he takes his place on the father's right hand, and that in the ancient world was a place of privilege, a place where VIPs sat. He says, Jesus, on you I bestow the title Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And my promise to you, because of what you have done at Calvary, is that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this very moment, Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of heaven, the throne of the universe, far above all rule and authorities, absolute power and dominion is his because he's received a name which is above every name. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. The Bible tells us that he is the ruler over all things because in him all things hold together. He's seated on the throne. We are told in Hebrews that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That he is enthroned above the circle of the earth. That he rules over the nations. He's the king of Africa, the king of Asia, the king of America, and the king of Australasia. He's the emperor of Europe, the lord of the islands, the prince of the prairies. There isn't one single square inch of real estate on planet earth or in any other solar system or galaxy anywhere in the universe that Jesus Christ does not rule over and there's not one item that is outside his sovereign power. As R.C. Sproul used to say, in his universe there is not one maverick molecule. But not only does Jesus rule over the nations, over the creation, he rules over the flood. He rules over circumstances and situations. And he is in charge of every situation that comes our way. And every need we have, he is greater than it. He's always greater, always bigger, always stronger because he's seated on the throne you know a few years ago we went to Langley in British Columbia it was a sister church of ours and um, they'd, they'd gone through some things and they were in a bit of a crisis so Val and I went out one summer for 10 weeks to just help them with some ministry we ended up staying nearly three years. And one of the things that um, we needed to see in place was a new pastor. And so we wrote to various authorities here in uh, Canada and, and our family of churches in England, and there were no takers. Nobody could be found 
anywhere. One of the local guys says, well, let's put an advert in the paper, the Christian press, or send it out to the Bible schools. And we thought, you know what? We don't want to do that because we, we don't want to just make an appointment. We want to receive who God is sending. And so we said, let's let the Holy Spirit be the search committee. Because what we will do is find a head and shoulders man when God will send us a heart person. So May of 2020, we started to pray that wherever God, this, this guy was and his wife in the world, God would loosen their roots. And he would put Langley in their heart and he would bring them to us. Now remember, this is COVID. So nobody's going anywhere. No planes are flying anywhere. However, Christmas that year, a plane did land. It came from Hong Kong to Vancouver and on it were two young Indian girls who were becoming students at Trinity Western University, which was about 10 minutes from our church. And their dad came with them just to make sure they were settled okay. Now, one of the elders in our church knew this family back in India. They were both Indian nationals. In fact, our elder had discipled this guy. And the elder's wife had introduced this guy to his wife, or his wife to the guy. And we ended up meeting for coffee. And as we sat down and I listened to his story, I realized that this, this, this young man had been a pastor for 15 years in India, in our family of churches, understandably meta. So he knew our DNA and our values and, and he was really, um, you know, one with us. But then I learned that he was the HR vice president of J.P. Morgan for all of Southern Asia. And they wanted him to go to Manhattan, to the world headquarters, and they were going to pay all his expenses to relocate his family there. And so I thought, well, this, this guy's going to go to, to Manhattan. And, and so... He said, actually, I'm not. He said, God's spoken to me. And he said, you are finished with the bank. And then God spoke to his wife and he said, and you are finished with your counseling work here in Hong Kong. And get ready for a change. I said, when, when, when did God say that to you? He said, oh, last May. And then I thought, as we started to pray, Lord, would you loosen their roots, wherever they are, loosen their roots. And then we prayed, God, bring them to us. And there he was. I mean, literally, he literally knocked on my door. This is where nobody's going anywhere. Everybody's in their social bubbles and isolated and masked up. And you certainly weren't crossing the continents unless, of course, you were called by God from here to there, and he made a way. And then he said, you know, as I was flying in the plane, there was something that settled in my heart that said, maybe God's got something for you in Langley. And he said, that really sat well. 
And I realized God answered all three requests. That God would loosen his roots. That God would put Langley in his heart. That God would bring him to us. You see, Jesus reigns over every circumstance and every situation. Nothing is too difficult for him. Our scriptures tell us he's ascended. Our scriptures tell us he's seated. Our scriptures tell us he's enthroned. And finally now, Jesus is coming again. Verse 11 says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. You know, for decades, parts of the church have majored on the second coming. But they've sort of got a bit sidetracked and they've tried to understand what events will take place. You know, when will the rapture take place? What about the tribulation? Are we mid-trib, pre-trib, post-trib? Are we pre-millennial, post-millennial, a-millennial? Or somebody said, I'm a wind-millennialist. You know, I'm just raising hot air. And, and we are so, they can get so focused in the future, there are no earthly good in the present. And conversely, there are those who are a, 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 a sort of soul embroiled in the here and now, they neglect an important doctrine that the Bible talks about, which is Jesus is coming again. The scripture gives a lot of time and a lot of place to that truth. 23 out of the 27 books of the New Testament talk about the second coming. There are 318 references to Christ's return. It averages out at one verse in every 30 in the New Testament. For every prediction about his first coming, there are eight about his second coming. So let me conclude this message this morning by thinking about the second coming. It's actually very applicable as we break bread together. Because Jesus said, do this until I come. How is he coming? Well, first of all, he's going to come personally. This Jesus who was taken up into heaven will come again. Right now, Jesus is here through the Spirit. And he's also here through the fivefold ministries, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists, who exercise the ministry that he held perfectly when he was on the earth. But one day, it won't be a delegate or an ambassador that he sends, but he will come personally. This same Jesus, flesh and blood, who was born in the stable, who died on the cross, who was raised from Joseph's tomb, who ascended into glory, he himself will return. But there's a second truth here. Not only will he come personally, he'll come publicly. His first coming was secret, with only a few people knowing just who was in that stable in the manger in Bethlehem. 
Not so with his second coming. He says the Son of Man will come like lightning, which flashes across the whole sky from east to west. Every eye will see him. He's going to come publicly. But he's also thirdly going to come powerfully. The angel said this same Jesus will come in like manner that you've seen him go. Christ's first coming was in weakness as a baby who needed to be fed and protected. But his second coming is going to be in strength and power. John sees him riding a white horse coming to judge and make war. His eyes are flames of fire. His head is adorned with many diadems. A sharp double-edged sword proceeds from his mouth. On his thigh is embroidered Lord of Lords and King of Kings. These are statements of power and glory and might. At his first coming, he was the lamb. At his second coming, he's the lion. Then he is servant, but now he is sovereign. Once he was the man of sorrows, but we will see him as the king of glory. Personally, publicly, powerfully, and purposefully. Because he's going to come and set all things right, according to 2 Peter 3.13. To destroy the devil and all his angels. Matthew 25, 41. To throw death and Hades into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 14. To reward the saints. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. And to claim his bride. Revelation 21, 2. And that's you and me. So. The application. Jesus is ascended. And occupies the highest place. Let's worship him. Jesus is seated. His sacrifice is sufficient. Let's thank him. Jesus is enthroned. As sovereign over all. Let's rest in him. And Jesus is coming again. Let's get right with God. And this morning. As we take these emblems. Val, I wonder if you could just go to the keyboard for us, please. Let's just, just set a tone. As we take these emblems, I'm going to read you. Val's just going to play. And I'm going to read a very famous passage of scripture. Does she need help turning on? She'll be all right standing. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. I'll just let the orchestra get in place. Thank you for your help. It says, For I have received of the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes let's come forward shall we and take the bread and the juice and take it back to our seats and then we'll partake all together please come come to the Lord's table we are here because of the blood of Jesus because of the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world cleansed our guilty conscience cancelled the record that stood against us and made us right with God justified us freely by his blood it's not with corruptible things such as silver and gold that we have been redeemed but with the precious blood Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. His blood speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. We have redemption and forgiveness of sins. That we who were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ God says I will blot out your sins I will remember them no more because on the cross Jesus called out it is finished the price is paid in full we can't add to it we can't take from it. God has done it all. Why don't we just take a few seconds and let's give thanks. Let's just do that out loud. One after another.
let's just thank Jesus for what he's done before we eat this bread and take this cup.